Hey, welcome to another episode of Ed Up Explained with your host Ashanti Martin. Ed Up Explained is part of the Ed Up Experience Podcast Network, where we bring you thoughts, ideas, and insights from today's brightest and most influential minds from across the globe. Uh, today, I am joined by one of those influential minds, John Graham Jr., author of uh, Plantation Theory. If you are on LinkedIn and you follow me on LinkedIn, you might have read about it. So here we go. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ed Up Explained. I'm Ashanti Martin, your host. I am very excited, thrilled to bring you um, John Graham. He is the author of the upcoming book that I predict will be a blockbuster, Plantation Theory, The Black Professionals Struggle. Oh, let's start over, John. Oh, you, were, you were on it. That was a good answer. All right, let's All right. start over. Okay. I am so pleased to bring you John Graham. He is the author of the upcoming book that I predict is going to be a blockbuster called Plantation Theory, The Black Professional Struggle Between Freedom and Security. I'll say it again, the black professional struggle between freedom and security. Hey, John. Hello, hello. Hi, Shanti. Um, so yes, I, I have the blessing and the pleasure and the privilege of being your first <laughs> interview after uh, yes. you announced your book. So how does it feel uh, to be a newly published debut author? Well, well, before I say anything, I'm honored that I could do my first with you on the Ed Up Explained platform. So thank you so much for the opportunity. And um, as far as being an, a published author now, I'm still wrapping my head around that. You know, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's wild uh, to think that these thoughts from my head accumulated over probably a year's time are now bound and ready to be, you know, delivered to the world. So I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I remember we had a conversation when we spoke last summer and yeah. uh, you were featured in my New York Times article. And I said to you that I found you via some articles that you had posted on LinkedIn. And I was just like, this is, you know, I have to talk to him. And you <laughs> mentioned that those were kind of the the seeds of the book that you started, had started working on at that point, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a lot right going on uh, in those weeks right after George Floyd's murder. And so, you know, uh, after about four articles on LinkedIn um, and a lot of uh, response and great response, not only externally, but internally at the company I was working at at the time, mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, I recognized that there was an opportunity to expand the thought beyond sort of the you know snackable or consumable blog format. So I took, uh, I took to putting those thoughts into a book and just got the outline for the chapters and, and went to town. Nice. Well, I just want to get into it because um, you were kind enough to provide me with a preview. So is it okay if I share a couple of snippets from that, from the book with our audience, and then we can talk about them? Most definitely. Let's do it. Nice. All right. This is in chapter one, code switching. 
the earliest scenarios for blacks and whites coalescing in a workspace together in this country are under the auspices of forced labor, better known as chattel slavery. Our primary connectedness hinges upon the very foundation of work and our earliest working relationship would set the scene for the next 450 years. Now, while we weren't paid for the work we performed for nearly 250 years, we still had to ensure that at no time did the overseer or master feel a perceived threat from our existence. Even more, for us to showcase and increase value by working extra hard to produce higher outputs could increase the likelihood of being sold at high market value and destroying families. It's out of these and many more scenarios where we've had to tone down our blackness and assimilate more of our white counterparts mannerisms into our living lexicon to achieve some semblance of success in corporate America. Um, I thought that was so powerful because it was basically, um, to me, it was kind of like the thesis of this book of this theory. So tell me a little bit more about, um, you know, how you made those connections and then some of the research behind it. Yeah, no, that is a powerful piece to uh, to dig into. I mean, uh, ultimately, working in corporate America is the daily dance uh, of reducing threat perception and increasing uh, assimilar uh, assimilation, right? And and reducing the 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 otherness that comes along with being black as much as we possibly can. Um, and mainly because corporate culture is predominantly white, unless you work in an all black or an all Latinx or an all, right? It, it, corporate culture by default is, is, is white. And so, you know, that is the reality that we have to live and, and navigate uh, on a daily basis outside of work, but specifically uh, inside. And so, um, you know, we learn at a very early age in the black community that you know you need to be bilingual if you want to advance to get opportunity and that is mm -hmm. you speak your relaxed vernacular at home but when you go into you know a job you speak corporate or you speak job right it's mm -hmm. a it's a whole nother uh, linguistic gymnastic uh that we have to uh, perform daily and so you know that dual consciousness or the double consciousness that wb the board uh uh, brings up um, is a lived experience. It's real. It is real. It is real. A lot of the stuff that um, he wrote about was real. And uh, I would love to do a whole discussion about that. Mm -hmm. But um, tell me sure. about some of the research that went behind this and mm -hmm. kind of things that you learned or discovered that stuck with you. Absolutely. So there's a ton of research that uh, covers uh, the impacts uh, psychologically, physically, mentally, um, you know, in a health perspective of living that dual consciousness, um, specifically for marginalized uh, groups, um, you know, having to wear that mask uh, ultimately can have long-term uh, effects on the psyche and the health. Um, and so, you know, not only the, the published research or journal research that's available, but also the conversations with um, various uh, corporate, black corporate professionals uh, in various industries and seniority levels and geographies uh, became the, the, the research foundation for, for, the, um, for that particular section, but most of the book as well. 
Yeah, that's uh, I, I really like the fact that um, this book is not this book is uh, part personal narrative, part, um, you know, sort of survey research by, you know, sharing stories from from people who have shared their stories with you and um, a, a whole lot of, of research into uh, historical patterns. So I'm gonna get into reading the second passage. So one sure. sec. And for our listeners, if you hear wild shrieks in the background, that's my kid. He's screaming on Discord. He doesn't know how to control himself. So <laughs> apologies, one second. So you are talking about a colleague or a friend that, that you were having a conversation with. And this is uh, part of your discussion. She said something so profound and familiar, I felt like kicking myself for not remembering a simple fact. She suggested that we in the Black community don't deal in coded language when, we, when engaging. We are direct, transparent, and we say what we mean. Not doing so in the hood, she said, is a sign of weakness, and you'll be labeled a punk as a result, mainly because you lack the conviction to say what you think and fear what someone will think and say or say about you. It reminded me of the various African cultures I'd studied in undergrad and how their languages didn't possess these gray area phrases that the Western languages do. There's more of an absoluteness to the ancient cultures that still exist today. Something either is or is not. There is no ambiguity. So this really gets back to uh, you know our discussion about linguistics and maybe you could tell a little bit about um, the interaction that that prefaced it. It was uh, you were having issues yeah. with uh, your direct manager's communication style. Tell mm -hmm. me a little bit more. Yeah. So, uh, and I do explain that in in the chapter, and that uh, you know, just feeling like I'm not understanding or what I think I'm hearing my manager say is completely not <laughs> what they were saying. And as I sought out. Um, insight from a higher level manager in the same function uh, who's a white man you know he sort of told me that you know I think you need to work on reading the weak signals and the tea leaves and and, and that statement just stuck with me like uh, like a like a, a thorn or you know a knife in the side because I was like what does that mean and and I felt like why do why do we have to why do we have to speak in coded and veiled language and not just say what we want? And so that, that led me to this moment in this conversation with a friend of mine who, um, you know, she told me like straight up and she worked same company. Um, and she was like, yeah, no, we say what we mean as black people. We are, we've, we've been taught to, to say what you mean and mean what you say, be direct. Um, don't throw stones and hide your hands, right. Own up and, and be, you know, uh, be be big enough to stand behind your statements with conviction, yeah. and it, and it, and I realized at a, at, a, at a more broad scale that that is not how corporate America works, mm -hmm. um, and and an even larger statement um, that a, a Western um, a Western um, approach to dialogue is coded and veiled and <clears throat> um, steeped in in being nice and. Uh, you know, cordial, but really, you know, not not being direct and forthcoming with intentions. And, you know, in a, in a corporate scenario, I guess there's an advantage to that because it's competition and there's 
you know, this, this sense of you don't want to give up your position to, to give somebody else an advantage, but it just seems so antithetical to collaboration, to clear communication and, uh, you know, connectedness. So, yeah, I think we might've had this uh, discussion before briefly, but just there's the more removed I get from, you know, that kind of uh, corporate sphere, and I've worked in higher ed all my life, but, you know, organizational sphere that is, you know, very dominated by white American culture. Um, mm -hmm. It just, it seems so weird to me, <laughs> you know, it seems so, <laughs> there's like a, there's the deficit mindset, I think, and mm -hmm. there's, you know, patterns of kind of punishment but there's no room or space for different models. Like you said, focus more on collaboration or collectivism, you know? Um, and I'm starting to see a lot of people challenge that, um, but I'm not sure that a lot of people, especially in corporate America, know what that looks like at this point. Yeah. You know? I, I couldn't agree more. And I think even generationally, that's gonna be, uh, a huge thing coming up as Gen Z hits the workforce. Um, you know, you're talking about a generation that was raised without these borders and boundaries of information. <clears throat> and transparency is the expectation as a default. Whereas, you know, you're moving into spaces where transparency and ambiguity are like you know, Hatfield and McCoy. <laughs> they, they are completely uh, at odds. Uh, especially the higher you go up in an organization. Right? Ambiguity yeah. becomes way more prevalent uh, in the upper echelons of organizations and you are forced to now, you know, move around, uh, uh, you know, and network and get allies and alliance. Like it's, it's a whole thing, right? Um, yeah. Honestly, it doesn't have to be. But yeah, again, it doesn't again. have to be. And it's just really striking that it's like just a general lack of openness to different models of community and ways of communication. Um, sure. You know, sure. it's kind of a missed opportunity, I think, for a lot of companies right now to, to, to you know, not embrace that. So, but speaking yeah. of companies, and you mm -hmm. can can piggyback on what I was going to say, but I do want to direct, uh, you know, talk about your work. You know, you are uh, an expert uh, thought leader, should I say, in um, employer brand marketing. So mm -hmm. tell me about your work in that space and, you know, how your work with the book yeah. forms that. Yeah, so I am embarking on a bleeding edge approach to improve the lived experiences of marginalized employees in the talent space. And so what I mean by that is historically DEI uh, or diversity, equity, and inclusion as a practice for the last 57 years has largely focused on process and initiatives and activity and performative outputs that really haven't done much to improve the lived experience of those most marginalized. And after 57 years of this practice, right, post 1964 Civil Rights Act, Title VII, um, it's produced an $8 billion consulting industry that has not produced a solution. And so when I, as I step back and I see this from an employer brand perspective, which for those that don't know, employer branding is the packaging and articulation of an uh, of an employer's culture 
to attract, engage, and retain uh, talent. And as companies look to attract more marginalized talent or underrepresented talent, it's, it's more important than ever to ensure that the marketing you're using to attract that talent actually reflects reality for when they become employees. Otherwise, it does, it does nothing to improve your retention rates. In fact, they end up spiking and causing more uh, ill sentiment in the marketplace against your employer brand. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, and people are starting to uh, be very clear and transparent about the experience as to warn other people not to go to these companies. So I help as a, as a consultant, I help uh, companies navigate their employee value proposition. What are those uh, those key traits and foundational truths that make your culture your culture? Um, but also applying a very unique uh, and, and actually game changing um, lens to that approach. Uh, with what we call a, a lived experience index survey uh, or score. And so this really aims to, to, to suss out what that lived experience is for those marginalized groups that those companies define based on their data so that we can be honest about the culture gaps that need to be closed in order to make your culture one that is attractive to all people, specifically marginalized talent that you are now that you have publicly committed to increasing representation of and creating inclusive cultures around. Um, so I think that's fascinating because, um, you know, some people love data, you know, <laughs> some people have to see the numbers before they are convinced of the validity of a personal story. So here you come in and saying, I'm going to solve that problem for you. Um, <laughs> That's right. You know, That's right. so I know that, um, tell me real quick. And then, uh, yeah. I want to ask for your closing thoughts. If I may, the, um, you also have another, uh, acronym. I'll start with the acronym. Cause I like it. AREP. Tell me what an AREP uh, yes. is, uh, anti- Racism Improvement Plan? Yes, yes. An ARIP is an anti-racist improvement plan. So it's much in the vein of a um, of a PIP, right? If people are familiar mm-hmm. with that term, which is a performance improvement plan. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of Black people are familiar with a PIP, honestly, mm-hmm. in corporate spaces. But a PIP is a performance improvement plan that is you know, structured around improving the performance of an employee who is deemed to be underperforming. It's typically an HR process that moves people through this 90 day period where they're evaluated and you know, given all of the tools that they need so that they can certainly uh, raise their level of performance in the eyes of the manager and the company, whatever. I suggest uh, an ARIP, an anti-racism improvement plan, is, is a tool that could be leveraged when a, uh, a marginalized employee files a complaint against a manager who is exhibiting microaggressive behavior, creating a toxic culture or environment uh, on a daily, business, uh, daily basis that uh, negatively impacts the daily lived experience. And so this would be an agreement with an employee relations department with a broader HR and so forth. And the manager who was, uh, who was complained or the complaint was filed against, uh, their manager would be involved. 
And this would include things like, um, you know, community service in a uh, underrepresented or marginalized community. Um, it would include a very specific or, or defined curriculum uh, for learning and improving cultural competency. And through these mechanisms, there would be opportunities for the person who filed the complaint and that per and and the and the um, and the complaint. Uh, I guess the the focus of the complaints management to all be in concert as they you know, define what good looks like or improvement looks like and checkpoints along the way to ensure that there's progress being made and that the lived experience is in fact changing. To which, you know, that manager who the complaint was filed against has an opportunity to either improve or the company deems that improvement has not been made and that, and that person is terminated. And I think this really doubles down on the commitment that companies are making with action and structure that says, we're committed to building an inclusive culture, but on the other side, we're committed to removing toxicity from the culture where it is, uh, where it is um, uh, discovered. Yeah, so you know what, when you say that, the first thing that comes to my mind is how you call yourself a staunch opponent of the performative right like this <laughs> is right. that kind of like deep in the organization type of change rather than just you know numbers or percent workforce percentages or or marketing mm -hmm. right that's really that's, right. that's the goal here so yeah, yeah. um yeah I'll, I will open up the floor to you with um some of your closing thoughts so 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 tell tell all of them to me <laughs> well, well, on that last point, look, I think we've over intellectualized the issue, right? There is no shortage of data that says uh, why diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives are good for business. Uh, there's no shortage of data that showcases the problem. It's not a capability issue at this point. It's a willingness issue, right? And so we have to start asking the right questions and, and not be committed to you know number and numerical improvements yes representation increases are good but i often say representation does not equate to inclusion just because you're adding more bodies to a burning building doesn't put out a fire mm -hmm. and companies need to remember that you can't out hire a bad culture you're just going to put more people into it mm -hmm. and so I don't believe that data is the solution. Data is another stopgap because at the end of the day, I've seen companies have the data that tells them very clearly and succinctly where their problem areas are and not do anything about it. So, you know, a commitment to change also incorporates consequence, right? Or incentive, because that's really the only way that behavioral change occurs uh, mm. in human psychology. Carrot or stick, as they say. Nice. So anyway. I'm off yeah. my soapbox. My Kanye rant is done. No. <laughs> hey, you know how I feel about Kanye. I'll take Kanye rant any day over a uh, yay button. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. So, you know, I just want to point out, like, I really like the, you know, just I'm a big fan of connection. So you're taking it back to like, you know, chattel slavery times and then into this mm -hmm. era of like using data and technology to root out, um, you know, some of the the lingering remnants of that stuff, um, or at least address it, you know, as best as we can, which I think is what we're all trying to do right now. So absolutely. So thank you for writing the book. Thank yes. you for um, 
your work. I want to mention that you do have a clubhouse club by the same title of your book, Plantation Theory, and you often host provocative discussions there. So just want to throw right. that out there. So um, yes, I look forward to those conversations on clubhouse there. Every time we have them, I grow. <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah, the people that join them. So yeah. Yeah, I definitely grow and then go unexpected places. And, um, you know, mm -hmm. at the end, sometimes I just feel exhausted. I'm like, okay, I gotta, I have a lot to process now. Let me go sleep, you know, because um, you That's did right. some late for me on the East Coast over here. So, um, but right. yeah, thank you, John. I appreciate it. And uh, I hope to, to have you on the show again after your book comes out. Well, the pleasure was mine, Ashanti, and thank you again uh, for everything you're doing uh, to advance uh, the move and the movement, uh, you know, for, for, for black, uh, Blacks in corporate spaces. So thank you, and Blacks yeah. in general. Thank you. Thank you for that. All right. Take Absolutely. care. Cheers. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining me. Please follow me, Ashanti Martin. On LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to them. Go leave me a review on Apple Podcasts if you're inclined, if you like what you hear. If you don't, please don't leave me a review. Thanks. Um, this is again part of the EdUp Experience Podcast Network. Go to edupexperience.com, click shows, and view the full list of our 11 and counting members of the podcast network they are expert they are fun and they are friends so at experience.com have a great day